Welcome to the podcast Night of Free Nor Fair about election security and the fate of democracy in the 21st century. This is episode nine, Election Calm or Chaos? I'm James Long, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Washington and co-founder of the Political Economy Forum. I'm joined for today's episode by a very special guest, Kevin Johnson. Kevin is the executive director and founder of the Election Reformers Network and a senior member of the US election expert team headed by the Carter Center. He has 20 years experience in election reform programming in the US and abroad. And Kevin is on the advisory boards of Fair Vote, Issue One, and Voter Choice Massachusetts. In these roles, Kevin has worked on campaigns to establish ranked choice voting, independent redistricting, electoral college reform, impartial election administration, and other reforms. In his international work, Kevin has observed elections in the West Bank and Gaza, Indonesia, and Sub-Saharan Africa with the National Democratic Institute. Kevin is also the CEO of Liberty Global Partners, an investment advisory firm he co-founded in 2002 that focuses on venture capital and private equity in emerging markets. Hello, Kevin. Hello, James. Thanks for having me. We are extremely lucky to have you here today, Kevin, uh, for today what will be what we will release as the first part of two episodes, given all of the subject matter on which you are an expert and we wanted to talk about. So on this first episode, we will focus on what Kevin sees as the major challenges for election security ahead of November 3rd and how his international work informs his work on American elections. And then in the next episode, we will discuss Kevin's thoughts about what citizens, election reformers, educators, and pundits will and should be saying about this election and democracy come January 20th, 2021. What are the real problems that we should address as a country and how should we tackle them? So Kevin, let's start by having me ask you, who's gonna win on November 3rd? Oh, you put me right on the hot seat here, huh? Okay, well, I'm not a pollster, but I can read polls like anyone else can, and it sure looks like Biden's pretty far ahead, but of course we never know. Well, when we say we never know, how much of this is PTSD from 2016 and how much of that PTSD is reasonable versus how much should we trust the polls and our projections at this point? That's a really good question. I mean, you listen to the pollsters and they will talk uh, quite confidently that they address the problems, you know, from 2016, where there was kind of an underweighting of um, white non-college educated voters, you know, there may be something else that they have underweighted. Um, But if you go back at sort of the accuracy of polling back over the last 25, 30 years, in general, it's been pretty accurate. In 2016, it wasn't. uh, And, you know, that should revert to the mean, that should revert to the norm. So it would be pretty remarkable if two successive presidential elections, the pollsters were that far off again. So I, I, I'm feeling, you know, just, yeah, of course, everyone's anxious, everyone's worried once what can happen, you know, particularly all the sort of doomsday scenarios in a way hinge on tight, close election. But that doesn't seem to be what's, you know, showing up in the polls right now. In fact, the polls make it just as likely that the election will be a landslide as it will be close. So uh, that I think that's reason maybe to, if you've got, if your hair is on fire, maybe to tamp down the flames a little bit. Well, what do you make of this? This It's kind of getting a little bit of a consistent reporting now on the Republican voter registration drives, particularly in states like Pennsylvania and Florida, that have outpaced what the Democrats have been able to do over the last four years. Do you think that's going to matter at all for the Republicans? You know, I mean, th- those are taken into consideration. I mean, I think it may um, close the gap marginally, but, you know, w- we'll see. But I think there is a Democratic majority uh, in many states. Turnout certainly is expected to favor 
the Democratic side, all indications, you know, were pointing toward breaking every record, many states breaking records in turnout, um, you know, and, and, and there'll be strong turnout probably on the Republican side as well. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. And, and I should say, I'm not, you know, I'm, I, I'm interested in election systems and election reform. I'm not interested in seeing one side win per se. Sure. So let me just put that out in front. So we, we should get to that. So, so I, I, I think the first thing I wanted to kind of have you characterize is one of the reasons I'm excited to have you on is that um, in a recent presentation at the Carter Center and, and in some of your other publications, you've, you've sort of taken a different position than a lot of listeners may have heard, which is that the fundamentals of our election system in the United States are actually quite strong. Lots of people have their hair on fire, chewing their nails, but can you tell us what you mean by that and why you're a little bit more sanguine or more bullish about how this might go and how and the outcome we might get? It's a good question. And the answer is a little complicated because, you know, I, I run an organization that think tank focused on uh, structural reform to U.S. democracy. We wouldn't have this organization if we didn't think there was a lot to be fixed. And we'll talk about that in session two. So I, I'm certainly not going to argue that everything's fine with, with our democracy and election system generally. But the degree of concern about any particular election, of course, is relative to how close the election is going to be. And so that's why it's a good question to start sort of what are the projections looking like and taking that aspect into consideration. But I also think, so that's, that's an overview. And then I wanna drill down on two particular, particular pieces of it. One piece is kind of a media comment. And you know we have a media landscape that cannot talk very effectively about institutions institution, it's people that drive, and stories about people that drive eyeballs, that drive viewers. And so naturally, the coverage is about this person, Donald Trump, and his extraordinary sort of great tragic, you know, largeness. And, and so there tends to be a lot of coverage around things like, will he accept the results or will he not accept the results? And in, in my mind, that puts it, that puts in my mind the image of the Roman emperor, you know, whose thumb is maybe <laughs> wavering. Is it going to be, you know, the whole, this whole election is going to take place, you know, they'll be voting in 50 states. And then all of a sudden everyone turns to the emperor yeah. and the thumb is, does he accept, does he not, you know? It's Joaquin and, Phoenix and the gladiator. With, yes, uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we have created the notion that we have an, an American emperor, not an American president. And that's kind of a, manuf a fabrication of sort of the media landscape. But, but, but let me just ask you just clarification. Yeah. Are you saying that in terms of the institution of the presidency generally or with Trump specifically? Well, good question. I mean, I think, and but I and I want to go back to the issue of accepting the results and how much that really matters. But, you know, I mean, if we look at the recent trajectory of the pre presidency, you have what you might argue was a non-imperial president, Barack Obama, who was shut out of the legislative process through Republican control of the Senate and had to turn to executive orders to achieve an, to an agenda. And Trump has followed much of the same playbook, arguably much less effectively because many of the executive orders haven't actually been all that well done and haven't been implemented. But you know, our presidency is, is strengthening in some sense in response to the gridlock of Congress. But this is getting away off the topic that we should be diving into, which is the nitty gritty around, around rules. So let me tack back to the notion of acceptance of results as one of several points of worry. And 
again, maybe, you know, I'm taking, I'm thinking about this just to sort of what's on the laws perspective, but come noon on January 2nd, the end of that presidential term, that presidential term is over. And if, tr if there is no specification in the law books that says, depending on whether or not the incumbent accepts, the following happens. That's not an if then. You know, if the results announced by the secretaries of state and certified by the secretaries of state would then lead to convening of sets of electors who then vote, who then send their electors to Congress and those uh, electoral votes are then counted and all of that results in not Trump winning, come noon on January 20th, it won't matter what he's accepted or not from a legal perspective. Now, there's the sort of social, cultural clash and flashpoint and risk of violence piece. And I don't want to minimize that at all. And, you know, we have been having confrontations on the streets of our country for much of this year. And my argument is not at all that that's, that's very low likelihood or we should be blasé about that concern. But what I think happens is there's sort of a bleed over in coverage of that concern into concern that sort of the mechanics themselves won't deliver what they're supposed to deliver. And, and just let me, let me add on to that point, you know, on another element, which is that there is a risk of sort of self-fulfilling feedback loop here. And I, I've been in touch with organizations talking about it. We need to mobilize on the street to protect the vote. There's organizations from the left. And my query back has been, when does it work to substitute citizens for law enforcement? And you know, law enforcement's job, if there are challenges to voting centers, that's the job of law enforcement. And what is, what is the likelihood that, say, progressive organizations trying to block conservative organizations that might be challenging, you know, concerned about vote counting, what, are, what is the likelihood that that doesn't actually spin out of control and generate exactly the pretext that might lead to the few sort of bad case scenarios that are out there? So I think there's a way in which kind of the anxiety can be create negative strategies that, you know, end up not, not making sense. So one of the things I'm hearing you say, which I think is a really good message, because a lot of Americans are confused about this. And I think it's because when we think of a coup or a, a leader who's not agreeing to abide by the results, you know, we sort of imagine, you know, Latin America in the 80s or Africa in the 80s and things like that. So what you're saying is that U.S. Constitution and subsequent law provides for on January 20th at noon, the previous presidential term ends, the chief justice wears in the new president and vice president, and it kind of doesn't matter what the, the previous president does or says. And there would be no sense, there would be no sense in which that that person would, if they decide to quote unquote, stay in office, that it's not really their decision. And number two, that they wouldn't be able to employ law enforcement, the military, et cetera, in the ways that when people are worried about a leader who's unwilling to lose power after their constitutional mandate has expired, sort of taking over. Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying. And I think, you know, you mentioned sort of the analogies to other countries and those kind of get brought up. But one important difference, or there are two important differences to, to point out. And, and one difference is that law enforcement is incredibly localized in the United States. And yes, there are, you know, there's sort of National Guard forces and other forces that, you know, Trump has called out in the BLM protests context. 
but it, it, there, and, and I've seen some very good studies on the limits on what he can do in this regard. And I can't quote those studies exactly, but they make it quite clear that his authority is really very, very limited. And it's much more in the authority of the governors to call and support. And, you know, although governors are one party or the other, no governor wants to be the state on CNN where, you know, the streets are burning. You know, that is not a place where anyone wants to be. So I think the scenarios that you're conveying over are kind of the coup scenario from other countries to what might, might happen here doesn't really accord with the reality of how force is deployed. And the other thing I think is that we have, we have every reason to be really confident about the individuals at the local level who are running this election. And the more I've gotten to know people at that front line, the more I felt that way. And the more I've talked to people who've been in this for 30, 40 years, the more they emphasize the same thing. There is a hidden asset in this country, which is an extraordinary sense of civic duty by the people who administer the polling stations, who are the local election officials. Yes, a portion of them are not going to be at work this year because you know a segment that's older did you know decided to step down given risks of COVID. But there's been incredible volunteerism there, and I think a really positive civic civic spirit. I think we miss the extent to which our election infrastructure has that kind of wonky, by the books, going to do the right thing, going to count what the count is aspect, because at the sort of most top level and sort of most in the news and prominent level, election debate is really what the state legislatures are doing. They're partisan creatures to the max, and they're making calls one way or the other to benefit their party. Those calls are getting challenged in court. And the other element, of course, is secretaries of state, who in general have done quite a good job this round but as we know, our, every secretary of state is affiliated with a political party. So the top level can make it seem like elections are not in hands of people who are gonna act completely impartially, but the more you look down to the lower levels, I think the more reason there is for confidence. So there isn't really a scenario that the counters are going to be cheating. There is a scenario that one side may be angry about the way the counting is going, and that's where law enforcement will have to step up and, you know, prevent any acts acting on that anger from taking place. Well, say a little bit more, because I, I, I think um, a lot of Americans and kind of reasonably so, because you don't learn about these things until you have to learn about them. But they don't really know who these people are, what their jobs are, what they're responsible for, particularly in states like Washington, for instance, where we all vote by mail. So we sort of lost mm -hmm the face of, like literally the face of election administration. Can you say a little bit more about that kind of bureaucratic aspect, which I know is maybe the least glamorous part of democracy, but also maybe the most important? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure how well I can paint a picture of who the people are, um, other than, you know, there's an interesting fact in polling about democracy in the US, which is that if you ask people how confident their vote they are, that their vote will be counted, the results are pretty high, sort of in the 70 plus, 70, 80 level. If you ask them in their confidence in our elections in general, it dips down to 40, 50%. So people generally have a positive experience. And the other element to sort of think about this is we are an incredibly self-sorted society. So most people live in a community where the other people nearby are either red like them or blue like them. You know, there are a few exceptions, but there really aren't that many. And the most states have a requirement that the election officials come from the county. So people are not, you know, not out of the community. They are from the community. And so people 
are voting, uh, going into a polling station or having their ballot read, you know, when it arrives at a polling station or election office by, you know, sort of their, their neighbors, or if not their neighbors exactly, then something close to it. And this is their job. I mean, this is like a this is like an official thing you get paid for. These aren't just sort of the lady of the church who's volunteering. I, I mean, when we're talking about the count and, and the certification processes, you know that there you're getting into the details that I'm not sure I can I can accurate answer in all cases. It depends. I mean, I think if you get to the city level where you've got massive operations, this is their job. When you get to smaller towns, that it, it does tend to be more of a volunteer, someone who shows up a couple you know a couple days a year you know, but has done it regularly and trained. Now, I should say, I mean, you know, again, I don't want to come across as pie in the sky. There are no problems. You know, one of the things we're doing with Carter Center is, you know, focusing on Georgia. And there were, you know, massive lines in Georgia during the primary this summer. To a large extent, those lines happened because the training that was scheduled for election officials to take in order to use new equipment that was implemented in Georgia was all canceled because of COVID and then had to take online, to be, to be done online rather than on, on purpose, on, on, uh, in person. And so, you know, people really felt undertrained in handling new equipment. You had equipment failures, you didn't have tech support in the polling stations. A lot of those problems are being addressed and that should manifest itself in better uh, and better line situation there and elsewhere. So what else, before we go to some, some of the things you perceive as the problem and that the Carter Center is focused on, give us a couple more ways in which you think the fundamentals are strong and people should not worry and sleep up. Yeah, so I, I started off by saying I sort of had two main things, themes. I got started at one and never got to the second, but here's sort of another theme or data point that undergirds my confidence here. And it comes from secretaries of state. And the context is, and this in a, in a way relates to one of the big theories. Let's say, let's say there, there have been two big theories. One is Trump you know, refusing to accept, sort of calls in some quasi-coup. We sort of talked about that. The other theory that gets talked about is the Bart Gelman theory that in a couple of state legislature, Republican-controlled state legislatures, there is a convincing of the legislature to, to name an alternate slate of electors. Um, this is his piece in The Atlantic that came out right. maybe two weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. And there are a couple of pieces to talk about there. The first is that it's pretty clear that the, the law says the states will name their electors on election day, on the first Tuesday. This day. And so a naming of electors subsequent to that would violate that law. So that's the anchor, the legal anchor on which the argument the, the Gelman argument has kind of been rejected. Now, the one loophole is that if election, if the election process that is established and started on that designated day fails, then the state legislature, in theory, may be able to name an alter, alternate. Although I imagine there's a there is a argument that says that state will not have electors. I'm not sure, you know, on that one, but. What does failure mean? And North Carolina is one state that actually has a specification on this. In North Carolina, if the results are not certified by what's called the safe harbor date, which this year is December 8th, then North Carolina law specifies that the legislature may name its own electors. So if the process is not completed, um, then that's the, ri the, the risk that, that can happen. So the theory, the sort of Gelman theory standard is that there's enough confusion created, there's enough legal challenges brought, um, there's enough disruption in counting that 
a couple of states aren't able to complete their processes and that creates the pretext for a replacement slate of electors. In response to that concern, I wrote a piece in March about that possibility effectively. And the piece said, the way we handle that is to push back the safe harbor date and push back the elector meeting date, both of which occur in early December and that together provide the safe harbor date is 35 days after election day. And so 35 of the 78 days from election day to inauguration are effectively available for states to do their process. And that That, goes to December 8th. That goes to December 8th. And those dates date back to the 19th century when, you know, more time was needed to communicate the results to Washington. And so I raised the point, there's no reason not to push these back. That got picked up in an op-ed that I did at the Washington Post, which then got picked up by Senator Rubio, who proposed the Rubio bill, which called for the safe harbor date and the elector meeting date, both to be pushed back by about three weeks to allow states more time to process this large number of absentee ballots and to allow more time for disputes. And Rubio in particular was motivated around this from having experienced Florida 2000, you know, where the safe harbor date played a critical role in that process. Maybe you were gonna go this way, but discuss that second date of December 16th. December 4th, December 8th is the safe harbor date. December 14th is the elector meeting date. The elector meeting date. Right now, federal law requires that the electors meet on that day because the Constitution says electors will all meet on the same day. On the same day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But that's, you know, the inauguration is until the 20th. The date when the Congress reads the elector votes is not until January 6th. So this period of three weeks that you could use if you move the calendar back. You could move both dates back more. Okay. You could move both dates back more. And that was an idea on an article by Dan Tokaji from 2008. That got picked up, as I said, in the Washington Post op-ed that that was the basis of the um, Rubio bill. This got picked up by a bunch of other scholars as well. And a couple of weeks ago, a letter signed by 40 or 50 sort of who's who of constitutional law scholars, you know, in the United States, sent a letter to both houses of Congress saying, support the Rubio bill, move these dates back. It's really important for elections. It didn't get traction. Part of the reason it didn't get traction is that members on the Hill were not hearing from their secretaries of state that they needed the time. And I actually, you know, looked into that and had a a dialogue with the National Association of Secretaries of State that confirmed that the Secretaries of State didn't feel like they needed the extra time. And to me, that's sort of an amazing thing. And actually, you know, again, part of the reason I'm sort of reassured about our situation here was really the who, if you look at the letter, it's got the who's who in sort of the election literati, let's say, who are all sort of pushing for, let's give everyone three more weeks. The three more weeks are there on the calendar, let's take them. And the secretary just said like, don't need it, we're fine. You know, and so again, I think the more you hear from the people in the front lines, the more it feels like the structure has it, has the capability to manage what's coming. But let me let me offer a cynical interpretation sure. of what the secretaries of state are, are saying. Some of them may be saying, please don't tell us how to do our jobs. We've been, we've been doing this. We got it. But they could also be saying, no, the more time we give you, the more you're going to slow us down and make it difficult for us because you're going to start introducing all of these legal objections to the way that we're counting ballots. So if we tie our hands, we effectively tie your hands. You know, and- that's, an, that's an interesting argument. And it's sort of 
fits with Florida 2000. I was going to say Catherine yeah. Harris is the ghost of Catherine Harris right. is, is in my mind right now. Yeah. Right. Right. Because yeah. But I mean, again, the the secret the, the and this goes back to the Gelman theory and the notion that a legislature would declare an election having failed and therefore step in and name its own electors. The secretaries of state in 40 states have the authority to certify the results. That authority is theirs alone. And an election with a certified set of results, under what pretext could you say that the election has failed and that you then can replace the, the electoral vote? You know, you mentioned Catherine Harris. She certified the results before, in fact, the you know, recounts called for were complete. And I think you can imagine a scenario where there could be supporting the likely scenario is the Trump side, but I don't want to, you know, that is opposed to how the numbers are looking and is jumping up and down outside of the secretary of state's office and saying, no, this is wrong. You know, this must have gone wrong or there must be this fraud for which there hasn't been evidence presented. And the, the election, the secretary of state goes ahead and certifies those results. It's that's a done deal. So again, I think but, but only, what about this idea of dueling slates of electors? Well, that's what this, that's what I'm saying. If if the results are certified, there is no pretext for a state legislature to replace the result thus certified with its own electors. The certification of the presidential results it effectively names the electors in accordance with those results. Okay, so as long as the uh, secretaries of state move first, certify the electors, it's done. The legislator, the legislatures play no role. Exactly. And and arguably, the role that they would play, even if there was some issue, is questionable because they are appointing electors not on the date specified by Congress. I'm not sure how that would be decided, whether in the vacuum they're given that right uh, or not. I don't know. I'm not sure. But to me, it's not clear. I think that's one of the many mysteries around how the electoral college system would actually work. Well, and Gore didn't pursue this. I mean, they discussed this avenue for him after Bush v. Gore, because you're mm-hmm. right that Harris Harris had effectively um, certified the electors in late November. Bush v. Gore, the recount happens in early December. Bush v. Gore comes down. And there was an idea that he would press on this issue about, is there a way to dispute the electors that have already been certified? And he conceded, right? What? How is the role of concession going to matter to how we think about whether or not this this election is secure or not? No, it's a good point, and I don't want to, you know, in my what I was saying at the beginning of the conversation that you know, if Trump does not concede, assuming Trump ends up on the short end here, that if he does not accept the results, you know, I was saying that that doesn't legally stop the process from going forward. While that's true from a legal legal perspective, it is also very you know, valuable in a cultural and normative kind of way to have the head of state or the loser accept the results. And, you know, functionally allows for sort of an easier wrap up in a sense for on the election administrative side. Um, But I think it's also sort of the big picture piece. I think it'll be a shame if there isn't an acceptance of results on the losing side this election. You know, again, if you look at the polling numbers, it would seem that the, the the victory that the Biden looks like he's so far ahead that it'd be pretty hard to argue uh, that the results aren't accurate. Trump has said he would accept the results of a free and fair election. You know, of course, there've been a lot of theories that he and some of the people around him have put forward about where there's going to be fraud. You know, when it's time to sort of put forward some evidence of that, 
we'll see if there is any. And in the absence of evidence, maybe his comment that he would accept a, a result an election that's free and fair will lead him to, in fact, accept the, the result. Well, I want to say one more thing about acceptance of results, though, because I think it, this touches back on the sort of international work and, and you know, the, which you're familiar with. You know, I, I think about George Bush's acceptance speech in 19, H.W. Bush's acceptance uh, speech in 1992. Um, and at that moment, I had just gotten back from about six months in Africa uh, working on election reform there. And I literally went from the airport to the room at NDI where we watched the results. And, and he comes on and makes the speech. And I burst into tears. And everyone in the room is like, you, you know, what kind of a wimp are you? What kind of a softy are you? And I said, you don't get it. I've been where people have been dying to hear those words. And at that point, 1992, there was not a living, uh, there was not an, a, a former head of state who had been voted out of office and had peacefully accepted the results in the entire continent of Africa. Well, wasn't it Kaunda in 92 in Zambia, right? It wasn't until him. That's right. right. And then Benin, the, the, yeah. I, whether it was whether it was Zambia or whether it was Benin, I'm forgetting now. But, um, but oh, Kirikau in Benin, yeah, he did. And then he came back. But Kaunda was the big one in Zambia yeah. in 92. To, the way I think about it is democracy is well established. Many countries have have developed it, but we really are the country that first took this step of making the will of the people the determining factor in who runs the country. And you know, John Adams was the yeah. commander in chief, and he stepped down. And it's sort of I call it our greatest invention because other countries replicated it to their great benefit. Uh, and it really is one of the greatest things the U.S. has given to the rest of the world. Now, when we did overseas work, we certainly didn't go and say replicate the U.S., you know, replicate the Electoral College, don't replicate our crazy Secretary of State, but replicate the spirit of what we've done. And, you know, a lot of countries did uh, really to their benefit. And so that's why from a sort of big picture kind of almost spiritual level, I really hope there will be an acceptance of results. But if there isn't, the country will move on. Well, I think what's interesting that people kind of forget is, you know, we think of elections as being about the voters. I mean, as voters, if we're not politicians, we think about it as being about voters. But a lot of this stuff, particularly in early days of democracies, is really about how elites are kind of negotiating and strategizing. And 1800 was so dicey in the United mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And it's almost to me impossible to imagine had it not been John Adams and Jefferson, had it not been sort of this what we know about these individuals as people and their ability to kind of keep it together and have a pact, had, had George Washington not been a good enough person to agree to step down. You know, I think of Nelson Mandela not running for reelection right. because he understood the importance of the ANC kind of surviving beyond him. But that's also very makes me very cynical about democracy. If you just have to hope that there are a few kind of virtuous, but not totally virtuous people who just come up with an agreement. And then that's kind of how it survives and continues. I mean, it's an interesting question because, I mean, I think one of the flaws, you know, from a two institutional perspective is that we think that the Constitution should somehow be sufficient unto itself to determine and lead us. But it wasn't written that way. It was written with the understanding that virtuous people would take the tools established in the Constitution and through their personal virtue would make that into a country. Um, and that's, you know, 
what do we do about that? You know, the flip side of that, though, the flip side is that the founders left political parties out of the equation. And it's the biggest mistake of the Constitution. And, you know, it's the cause of the Electoral College, right? I mean, Electoral College is the worst design institution probably of any constitution ever written. It totally failed in what it was set up to do, which was kind of have this club of wise men who, who intermediated. At that level, it did not do what it was designed to do. And that's because the founders thought they could keep parties out. You know, and the, as soon as you have an election that's meaningful, parties compete. And so they took over effectively the mechanism that was put in place. So you could make the argument that, you know, we must go back to having elites that are virtuous in order for a system to work. On the other hand, you could say more realistically, the way democracy has evolved, and we know a lot more about democracy now, is that it's evolved into a structure where political organizations compete within established rules. And the missing ingredient in the United States as well established elsewhere is the restraining of the political parties into their appropriate role and out of the role of controlling the rules. For example, redistricting, for example, election administration, that's all stuff we'll get to in the second, second conversation. But I don't think you necessarily have to depend on the benevolence of elites as you're implying. Once things take off and solidify and consolidate, which, you know, in the United States took a very long time and in the countries we mentioned took a very long time, um, then, you know, it, the, the engine starts to run. But, but democracy still requires a lot of work. And I think one of the things that this election is doing is revealing for people that you always got to work to support it. There's no sort of way to sit it out, even though we've you know, we've had recent elections that were won by comfortable margins. We've had recent elections that were questioned. And now everything is kind of on the table in front of us. And, and I think a lot of people don't necessarily know how to make sense of it all. But it's like every country faces a version of having to fight to protect the integrity of their election every single election. It's never a done deal. You can't just, it's not on autom uh, automatic pilot forever. I, James, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's really well said. And uh, the way I think of that is, you know, there's a concept of democratic maintenance that you have to regularly upgrade the system. And the, I often think of the metaphor of, of sort of water that, that, and it's particularly as regards money in elections and money dominating political space. And there was always a tendency of democracy to sort of degrade to oligarchy as money corrupts. Uh, and so Certainly for the Romans. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and many others, and maybe for us. You know, I mean, there's a lot of questions about whether our, these elections actually result in, in, in the majority having an influence on policy or whether that's just already sort of decided by who's giving the most money, but that's a different issue. But we, we need to regularly update our systems in order to keep the notion of policy that's reflective of people as opposed to policy that's sort of influenced just by money. That's so what are the... What are the real threats in this election? I mean, separate and apart from the kind yep. of politicization and weaponization of electoral integrity now as a political issue, but what do you perceive as the real threats and what is the Carter Center actually looking at? So I think one of the key threats really is this, the, the instability, um, potential for unrest and potential for conflict. The Carter Center is you know, working on these elections in, with, with, under two hats. One is an election program and one is a conflict resolution program. I'm on the election side, but, but on the conflict resolution side, they are looking to be a stabilizing force in communities where there may be risk situations. Um, on the election side, the theme is transparency and trust. We're doing a lot on the public in information front to make voters aware of 
what the laws are, what the systems are, why the systems are reliable, what happens in different scenarios, why voting might take longer. We're also working kind of effectively behind the scenes with election administrators to encourage them to increase the transparency of their operations, to encourage them to continue to do the outreach that will lead to voters having more confidence and better understanding what's going on. It's, as you know, this is the first program that the Carter Center has done in U.S. elections in its over 30 years of history. Um, and the Carter Center initiated this, you know, just I think Jason Carter's kind of launch op-ed about this was in late August. So the program is fairly short. It's, it, it has not been going for a long period of time. So there's a fairly defined and, and fairly narrow mandate given that time frame. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the paradox just of that situation? I mean, Jimmy Carter was obviously an American president, but the Carter Center is a global organization. And one of its missions has been to support democracy and free and fair elections all over the world. But what does it now mean that the Carter Center, which we think of as this international organization supporting democracy, is now having to shine a light on the U.S.? Well, and... and um... Jason Carter wrote about this in this op-ed in, C- in CNN. He talked about the kind of warning signals here in the U.S. that have made the Carter Center feel that it's time for them to come in and, and be involved here. And you know, those these are familiar. I mean, greater, more intense hyperpartisanship than the country has experienced, you know, maybe since the Civil War. Greater doubt about and greater and greater misinformation about election processes than we've ever experienced. Uh, and so it's really, it's, it's a sense that very risky and precarious situation of voter confidence more than anything else that I think has motivated the, the Carter Center to get involved. It's not really a reflection that, you know, the structure is a mess and we got to get in here so we can tell everyone all the structural problems in an observation report as the Carter Center might do elsewhere. It's much more that as sort of a calming and reaffirming and positive influence, we can help people see what's happening, what's the, which of the things people are afraid of and are not happening, and why there's reason to trust the process. Sure. And you, you mentioned Georgia and these long lines in Georgia. And I wonder if you could talk about voter suppression, because I think voter suppression is actually a topic that a lot of Americans do know a lot about and have some history of. Mm-hmm. But I think before this election, a lot of people thought of it in terms of actual changes in law around voter ID and things like that. And, and how does that kind of contrast with just it taking a long time for people to vote, it taking a long time for certain populations or certain um, uh, precincts for people to vote, it taking a long time obviously during COVID. Um, how, do we, how should we be understanding what voter suppression and voter access means in this election? It's a great question. And I think it's very hard to, to tease out all of the elements of that, particularly because I believe voter suppression is a word that should, that implies intent and proving intent is always difficult. You can demonstrate impact, but proving intent is complicated. And if there is, you know, a six hour line outside of a polling station, did someone intend that to be a six hour line in order to make the people of that community not be able to vote? It's certainly possible that they did, Um, But it's, I think in general, one tends to be, humans all tend to be a little bit conspiratorial and so, and and less likely to believe that things happen because, you know, accidents happen, mistakes happen, people make, you know, people are disorganized, systems fail, training gets canceled because of COVID, the technician doesn't arrive and so the third machine doesn't get turned on and they're only operating with two or whatever it might be, you know, 
across all of the polling stations that have had long lines for the primaries, which is quite a good, quite a large number, you know, how do you tease it out where there's been intent and where there's just been accident? I don't have, you know, I, that would take a very, you know, that'd be very difficult to assess. You know, maybe this is a Rorschach test, you know, on my personality, my, where I land on that Rorschach is probably it's actual intent to suppress is a lot less common than we fear. So that's one half of the answer. And that particularly relates to the issue of long lines. The second half of the answer is we have election rules established in this country by people with a stake in the game. You know, it's the governor of Texas deciding how many drop boxes there will be per county. You know, he runs what would be the 10th largest economy if in, the, in the world if it was a separate country. What's he doing micromanaging how many drop boxes there are? If you look at other countries, they have much less of the sort of election litigation that we, than we have and much less of the sort of challenges. And the reason is that the decisions for, about implementation of election procedures have been delegated to election specialists who are impartial, who are given the responsibility of, of making the, the detailed decisions. I've just been research, I'm writing a new piece on this. And so I've been in touch with the election commission in South Korea, the election commission in Queensland, Australia, and the election commission in New Brunswick, Canada. And I've asked the question, what did you change? What, what level was the decision to make that change made? And to what extent were there lawsuits in response to those decisions? And, you know, the report back is just so should be very eye-opening because we are we are just such a remarkable outlier in this regard and how much decision making about election details that matter we put in the hands of entities that are partisan that have partisan interest at stake and that is a real driver of the potential to suppress so i'm not going to guess where the intent not intent line lies but i am going to recognize that it's a huge problem and it arises because we put partisans in charge and we should be clear. I mean, right now, suppression is assumed to be the thing that the Republicans do. You know, there is a very rich history of voter suppression from Democrats, of course. It's called Jim Crow. So this has been going on for a long time. So what, Kevin, is going to happen between, let's say, the evening of November 3rd and that safe harbor deadline of December 8th with respect to the count? You've got swing states trying to do mail-in ballots for the first time at scale with COVID. You've got um, in-person vote ballots that are gonna have to be counted. You have a lot of potentially legitimate, but also maybe in bad faith uh, cases that could, that could uh, affect how the ballots are adjudicated or counted. What are your worries for that, that count and certification period? So I, I think one piece that doesn't get recognized that much is how many states have made a smart adjustment to their rules that allows them to begin the processing of absentee ballots before election day. The majority of the states, that's the case. Uh, and that means that ballots are opened, the, if they have the software scan, the signature scanning software, the ballots, the, the, the envelopes with the signatures are run through um, the, the software checks. Uh, there may even be an opportunity for a cure of you know, voters that are challenged for signature reason. And so those ballots are all ready to be 
batch process through scanners on election day, or in some cases before election day. Florida, is, those absentee ballots are already being counted. They started being counted 22 days before the election. So I think when people do the projections around when we'll know what results, there's been a little bit of a misunderstanding of the actual sequencing of what gets counted when. And in many states, it'll actually be the absentee ballots that are counted first, not last. It'll then be the in-person ballots and last the, the small amount of provisional ballots. So you put all that together, you know, the range of different scenarios can happen. I mean, I don't, I think it's conceivable that we'll know the result election night. Florida should be able to announce one way or another, you know, on November 3rd by 9 or 10 p.m. And if that's for Biden, that's a pretty strong indicator. Um, if you take the sort of, you know, the solid or, you know, strong, you know, blue states, add those together, uh, you know, add in Florida, you're getting actually pretty close to 270 right there. And then, you know, if you have other states that can also process early, North Carolina, uh, Ohio. So um, you may, you know, it's conceivable that it could be over 270 election night, or it could take a few days. Uh, hearing from the Pennsylvania Secretary of State the other day, I think she said she counts, expects it'll take 80, no, sorry, this is Michigan. Um, she expects it'll take 80 hours to process uh, all of their absentee ballots because they can't start early or start very early. And they, they uh, that'll be, you know, 24 hour shifts. It'll take them four or five days. Um, Pennsylvania, likewise, they project sort of four or five days. So I think we'll know all of the results by the following weekend. I think 538.org, the polling organization, puts it at about a 4% possibility that the election will come down to one state that itself is at a less than 1% margin of victory. So it may be that the last states coming in, the Pennsylvania and Ohio coming in, will be interesting to know, but won't actually be, be determinative. We'll already have the results. But could the sequencing on this actually play to either side's advantage? So here's what I'm thinking. Let's say we know pretty early in the evening on the 3rd that, November, uh, that Florida is a Biden landslide. Mm -hmm. If I'm the Trump campaign, the next morning, I start filing lawsuits in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, North Carolina, where I'm worried and where I think I can gain strategic advantage. Conversely, if it's the other way around and, and Trump wins Florida resoundingly, but what happens if Florida is, it's like 20 years ago and it comes down to it and there's an, there has to be a recount and Florida is the bellwether, but it's the bellwether that says, look, you know, either side can win Florida, but the, the lack of clarity on the result or even a, a really clear result is going to provide motivation for the other side to start contesting um, how the ballots are counted in these other swing states. Well, some of them will, you know, Arizona, you mentioned, they they will have counted beforehand. So um, as will, you know, North Carolina. I mean, so the day after election, even if it were, even if there were substantial evidence sufficient to lead a court to agree to a stay of the counting process in order to address a complaint of fraud. And I think that's a pretty big question because what's the evidence? 
so far well, matching signatures in Michigan on mail-in ballots um signature software know. that has been proven effective and is you know in the six states that have been doing this for a long time uh, what's the evidence but if even if there is evidence starting the day after election and starting to challenge it, there may already be enough ballots already counted and tabulated that it's too late for Trump to make a difference. I mean, there's something like 25, 30% of ballots in many states that are already in the bank right now from in-person early voting and, and from already arrived mail ballots. So, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I, my risk is to be, you know, is I've, I've sort of taken the argumentative position of the, it's going to work out. And so I sort of defend that position. And you're right, there, there could be, it's worth being aware of these concerns and the sort of litigation to throw, you know, sand in the gears, you know, is a, is a, is a potential, is a possibility. I mean, it's a, it's a likely scenario. It just, it doesn't seem to me that, I mean, the, and the model we have, of course, is Florida 2000. But that was 537 votes, right? Yeah. And so you could get a court to agree that yes, we should go back and look at these because it's such a tiny margin. I think there would there would need to be that context in order for any of these these challenges to get traction. I mean, it's not impossible, but I think that it's 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 less likely than maybe we think. So getting back to the the, the Atlantic piece, one of the things that Gelman talks about is. Um, after the safe harbor date and the states sit and they issue their electors and then they send their list of electors to the National Archives and to Congress and, and maybe there's there's dueling slates or maybe there's not. Do you see any um, scenario where when Congress convenes on January 6th that there may be something that Congress has to decide slash something could have made it up to the Supreme Court by that point that will be that that will sort of hit at a moment after the elector, the electoral college bit of this is done, but before the actual inauguration. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question. Um, and I think one of the things that's been most valuable in a sense about this election process is it's brought all of that stuff out of the attic of our country and made us look at what's, you know, or the basement, I guess. The basement, you know, I was going to say the basement. Right, you know? it's the heating thing that's been cranking. <laughs> like a Rob Zombie film or something horrible, yeah. No, it's, and we we have to look at this stuff. The Electoral Count Act has to be affixed. Um, we're not going to get those things fixed and, you know, before this election. So we're going to have to sort of whistle past the graveyard in some sense. These are risks that, you know, we've that have always sort of been lurking election after election, in addition to the really the, you know, the problematic scenario of a tie and then how that tie. So yeah, there are scenarios that go to messy places for sure. And either the messy places are either with fairly clear processes that are undemocratic, such as the tiebreak mechanism established in, in the constitution, or to messy processes that, or to undemocratic processes where there isn't clarity about how it works such as the sort of the dual slate and who, who actually counts the votes and how challenges to the votes actually get processed. So for sure, uh, but I think those are in the, they're in the black swan. They're not that, I, I think they're less, they're less likely than, than people think, but it's good that people are talking about them because we need to learn about them. Well, we do need to reform the, the Election Count Act for sure. Um, and I, I guess I wanted, we could end this part of the conversation. And I wanted to ask you about not a legal and an administrative part 
but a more political aspect that people are worried about with November, December. You had mentioned before, sort of, there's a lot of energy on the left to kind of turn out and just be mobilized to protest right. or, or to protect voters and then potentially to protest. You know, we could reasonably assume right. that people uh, in the Biden camp or Democrats would want to protest if they think something has gone wrong. And, you know, there's been mobilization on the right as well um, and threats against uh, uh, election officials as well as governors and, and legislatures and things like that. What do you think plays out on the streets and how do you think that might influence potential vote counts, legis you know, legislatures meeting, court cases, things like that? Good question. Uh, again, another, another you know, really helpful learning that's come out of this process is the recent analysis I think Georgetown did looking at the illegality of self-initiated militia or self-organized militia, I think is the language. And that's as opposed to well-regulated. As opposed to well-regulated. Well-regulated <laughs> yeah. is the word that gets left, that doesn't get thought about enough. That means regulated by the state, not by, you know, the commander in charge, you know? <laughs> um, and I think, I think, you know, attorneys general and law enforcement are getting briefed on this issue. It may, unfortunately, they're, you know, it's how do you go and arrest a militia that's a third world problem, right? This is a warlord kind of problem. That's a problem that's really ugly. But um, I, I think we have but, a firmer sense where the law lies on the freedom to, to, to get, I mean, during the pro Black Lives Matter protests, there were militia self-designated to protect, um, you know, courts and other government property. That in retrospect, we should recognize as having been illegal and that that kind of activity should be policed. Um, and I believe, I'm confident that it will be better policed than it was then because there's a fundamental difference between the election protest environment and the protest this past summer. The protest this past summer pitted opposing protesters against each other. What will likely happen around election, at least at an initial level will be protesters angry about the results or angry about the direction of counting or fearful about where the counting is going, demonstrating against the civil infrastructure designed to do its job, the counting of ballots or the voting itself. Uh, and, and that makes it, that's much clearer for law enforcement to understand who's in the right and who should be protected and who is creating intimidation or other violations of the law than it is to make that discernment between two sides of a protest on whether, you know, Black Lives Matter or whether there should be greater racial justice or not. Um, so I, I think we, I, I'm optimistic that they'll be, we'll be in a better position than we were, you know, in some of these conflicts over, over the summer. So that's part of the answer to your question, but go back to me with what I missed. <laughs> Well, I, I'm just thinking of the Brooks Brothers riot in yes, 2000, yes, you know, yes, and, yes, and people yes. forget that allegedly Roger Stone was involved in, in organizing that. But it sounds like what you're saying is we can learn from that. We don't have to repeat that mistake. Right. So if we know that there is a uh, let's just say an, an election count center or let's say the legislature has to meet for something or a court has to meet for something, we can be aware that those types of activities may happen that affect those people's ability to, to get to work and do their jobs. And so we could ahead of time plan for that with respect to law enforcement and protest in such a way that allows people to peacefully protest at the same time, not uh, be violent and shut it down like what happened in Florida, but also um, allow them to continue to do their jobs and, and, and move this towards an outcome. I think so. I mean, uh, there's always ways that it can misfire. I mean, 
you can also have this sort of, you know, false flag, you know, maybe the, the first shot gets fired by one side again. You know what I mean? There are a lot of scenarios that, that, that could evolve, but I, I think we're better prepared than they were in, in, you know, the Brook Brothers riot that you mentioned, you know, and, and that was Miami Day, right? Which kind yeah, of Miami Day during the recount. Yeah. 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 Well, great. Thanks a lot. I think that's a good place to end Kevin Johnson okay. for today. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to our conversation on the next episode as well. James, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free No Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by myself, Nicholas Wittstock, and Morgan Wack. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.